continue on talking about the fruit of the spirit. Most people, and uh, when I say most people, I include myself in this. They, when they come to the point where they're talking about, uh, they come to the verse that talks about the fruit of the spirit they read it as though they have to do it all by themselves and if spirit to be made interact but no it is not solely all about you it is the work of the holy spirit that makes the fruit of the spirit manifest in inside of us that's why it is called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of Simon. It's not called the fruit of Doug. It's not called the fruit of whatever your name may be, but it is called the fruit of the Spirit. And there is a verse that I really, really love. It's one of those verses, just like when you are born again, uh, it's uh, like a John 3, 16 verse that you hold on to for years until uh, you grow up. And this verse, um, when I came across it years ago, it has always been a verse that I hold on to. It's 1 Corinthians in vain. The grace inside of me was not in vain. Um, uh, I worked hard, but, but it was the grace that was doing it all inside of me. It was not me. So it, it gives us a picture. Did that verse come up? I don't know what's happening to the screens. But it gives us a picture of, of uh, grace and effort working hand in hand. They are both ha working hand in hand. But ultimately, the one that is doing all the work is grace, which is the hand of God in your life. No matter how much effort you put in, no matter what work you put in, at the end of the day, it is the hand of God that makes it all work. And the reason why it is the hand of God is so that God gets all the glory and you get no, no glory. Because if you are working it and making it happen, then you are going to get all the glory. But it is not, the glory does not belong to you. Our boast ought to be always in Christ and what Christ is doing in our lives. Amen. And so, if this thing called the fruit of the Spirit is not working in your life, if you've been a Christian for years and your love is not becoming, you're not becoming more loving, Mr. Grinch, you are, your joy is not, is still based on the materialistic and worldly things, Miss Kardashian. If your peace is still based on the, the, the pieces that the world gives to you, then we need to ask a very brutal question because you are in regression. You are not progressing as a Christian, but you are in regression. So we need to ask this very brutal question. Is the grace of God in vain? in your life is the grace of god in vain in your life is it working in your life or it's just not working and if, if it's not working the only way you can remedy it is simply by acknowledging and accepting the work of christ in your life and when you accept the work of christ in your life you turn and pursue that life that god has given you and the, our pursuit is not of something that's far off. It is not of something that is distant. But our pursuit is of someone who already resides inside of us. And his image is already inside of us.
and his name is Jesus Christ, if you're born again. As I prepared to share, prepared what I'll be sharing with you today, I'm always, I always realize and I'm always um, constantly aware that we are all at different levels as Christians. There are those who have just gotten born again. There are others who, who have been walking as Christians for years. You actually deserve a statue in, in dedication of your, your service of what you have done. You've actually become a war vet as a Christian. And as, as much as we are all at different stages as Christians, in the kingdom of God, there is, we all sit at the same table and there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. And at this table, there is cutlery all set up for the meal that we are going to partake in. It gives me, it gives me the idea of, uh, of one of these high-end or expensive restaurants that you see on TV or, or movies, whether it's from Italy or Paris, where you get an eight-course meal. Now, for, for my brothers, an eight-course meal is something very foreign because where we come from, we used a one-course meal, which is made up of stadza, mriwo, nenyama. And it is made up minimum three colors. But an eight-course meal perplexes some of us because when you talk of an eight-course meal, for us, some of us, we look at it as Sata mriwo nenyama times eight to each other and we say, boy, they say we eat, but they eat a lot. It doesn't make it even, it doesn't make it even uh, easy when we turn the Bible and we find a young boy carrying seven loaves and five fish. If a young boy is going to eat seven loaves and five fish, what are the adults going to eat? At this restaurant, and I, I presume most of us, if I had to, 9% of us in this room have never been to these restaurants. But in this restaurant, the thing that you a sweat under your armpit is when the bill comes and you happen to grab the bill and you glance at it and you realize why everyone is passing the bill, you also grab the bill and you see zeros and you keep on passing it. Some of us in the kingdom of God, if we had to see the bill that Jesus Christ had to pay, we would all act differently because it would be a huge bill. The thing that gives you a cold sweat under your armpit is as you read that menu, you see words that you can't even pronounce and you wonder whether your taste buds are going to be able to pronounce the taste or able to enjoy what you're ordering. But the thing that really gets to you is as, it's, as you sit down, when you look at the cutlery, there are five knives on your right. There are four forks on your left. There are three spoons on top. And when you look at that, you're like, okay, there are three spoons, but in the three spoons, one of them is a fork. Shouldn't it be on my left? You're already confused. When you look at the knives, there's another fork. You're like, but shouldn't it be that side? And when you look at 
one of the knives, it looks like a spoon. You're like, shouldn't it be that side? Now I'm going to be very confused. And when the food comes, you are wondering, do I start from the inside out? Or do I start outside in using the cutlery? And common sense hits you. You do monkey see, monkey do. You do as the Romans, you do as the Romans do. You look for the bougiest person or that person that seems to have that certain je ne sais quoi, that, that seems to know everything at that table. And if they put an apron in their shirt, you do exactly the same. If they put an apron on their lap, you do exactly the same. If they hold one of the spoons, which is a fork, you also do the same. That is common sense. When, they, when the person says a dry joke, you don't laugh like you're at a bride. There has to be some evidence when you laugh. <laughs> the problem with, uh, with that story I'm telling you is that if that one individual is doing the wrong thing, you are all doing the wrong thing. What we find in church, sometimes we model our Christianity, we model the fruit of the Spirit, we model our lives according to what a person who seems to have that certain genetic are. What do I mean? This person seems to have all the verses. They seem to know all the songs. They don't even look at the, the monitors when we are singing. They seem to raise their hands when, they, when you walk into the church and you greet them. They have an anointed greeting and greet you with verses. And we model our lives around such people. And that is the scenario that Paul is dealing with in Galatians. In Galatians 3 verse 1, he says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has conned you? Who has used sorcery on you that you are all following this individual into the wrong thing? You are so foolish. In Galatians 3 verse 3, he goes on to, to explain their foolishness. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you made perfect? in the flesh. Ladies and gentlemen, the fruit of the Spirit is first inside out, just like with the cutlery. It's inside out. No, you don't do that. In the cutlery, it actually goes zigzag. Okay, <laughs> don't, don't, don't. But it is, it is inside out and not the other way around. You first begin inside. That's why the Word of God says, Work out your salvation and not work it out, your salvation. It is to work out your salvation. Amen. And so, in saying all this, man is a spirit, he lives in a body, and he has a soul. But the world has taught us that man is a body, he has a spirit, and he has a soul. 
And when we realize that you are a spirit, and when you got born again, the Holy Spirit came and he regenerated your spirit. And in regenerating your spirit, your spirit became brand spanking new. There is no trace of the old. There is no trace of the past. You are a completely new creation that has never existed. And as you sit, if you're born again, your spirit is exactly the same as Jesus right now. As he is, so are you. This very moment. You are not trying to become like Jesus. You are like Jesus. Your soul is being renewed. It is constantly being renewed. It is not saved. Your soul, your soul constitutes of your feelings, emotions, intellect. I've already said emotions. I was thinking of another word. But it constitutes of that. And your soul is continuously being renewed. How has it been renewed? As it reads the word of God and as it partakes and is part of the things of God. That is how your soul is being renewed. When you look at the word of God, you are looking at a mirror. And when, and some of us, when we look at that mirror, me included, when I look at that mirror, we turn around and we forget how we look and we do things that we are not supposed to be doing. You look at the word of God and you see yourself and do exactly what the word of God is saying. Your body is not saved. You will receive a new heavenly body when you get into the new heaven and earth. Why am I saying all this? The reason why I'm saying all this is because as it stands, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have God inside of you. You have the image of God inside of you. Therefore, you have the fruit of the Spirit inside of you. Are we together? You have the fruit of the Spirit inside of you. But as long as you are in this world, and as long as you are in that body, there will always be enmity. The flesh will always be in opposition to the Spirit. At this very moment as you sit, there is a tug of war happening inside of you and it will continue until you die or Jesus comes. There's a tug of war. And what's that tug of war? The flesh is trying to lead you to the things of the world. The spirit is trying to lead you into the things of God. So there is that tug of war. And that war is decided by your soul. Every battle that you face, your soul is the one that would decide who the winner is. Your soul is an umpire. He is a decider. He's a referee. Who decides and makes a call whether the grace of God is in vain in your life or whether the fruit of the Spirit will be made manifest for all to see. If you're... If you're if your soul pursues something, that is where you're going to end up. Wherever your soul, whatever your soul pursues, you are going to be led to that thing. Amen. And so if your soul pursues and uh, is submits itself to the flesh, you are sowing 
and you are reaping the works of the flesh. If your soul pursues and submits to the Spirit, you are sowing and reaping the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 16 to 18, to 17, sorry. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Today, we're going to be looking at gentleness. Gentleness is what we are looking at today. What is gentleness? Other versions translated as meekness. Gentleness comes from the Greek word, which is proatis, which appears 12 times in the New Testament. And in, the, in ancient times, it spoke of um, a soothing medication, medication that was soothing. It spoke of a gentle breeze. It spoke of a young coat that had been broken. Where the coat had been unruly and wild, but now it was tame and it was gentle and its power had been channeled to a productive manner. Gentleness is mildness. It's having a gentle spirit, a gentle heart. Not harboring a spirit of retaliation or a spirit of revenge. Or, uh, or vindication or hostility. That is what gentleness is. And the world views gentleness as weakness. And weakness and passivity. Sometimes we ourselves can view it as weakness, as uh, lacking power, as being um, uh, a coward or uh, a spineless or impotent. We can see it like that, that this individual is weak. They are spineless because they are gentle. But that is not what gentleness is. Gentleness in its definition is power under control. Gentleness is power under control. In Proverbs 16 verse 32, it says, better or whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, then he who takes a city. Power under control. Used at the right time, at the right moment, at the right occasion, at the right amount, at the right length, for the right reason and the right cause. That is what gentleness is. Gentleness is a byproduct of humility. Whenever you meet somebody who is humble but has power, they have resources, they have competences, they have capabilities, they have skill. If you meet a person who is humble, who has any of those, and they are humble, you are meeting a gentle person because their power is under control. Amen.
That's what gentleness is. It is a product of self-emptying. You are emptying yourself, and it is a broken will. And we see this in Philippians 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Verse 7, but emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when we dwell in gentleness, when we find ourselves in gentleness, we are, all we are simply doing is we are letting that part of the fruit of the Spirit manifest and mature in our lives. And as we see there from that scripture, we see an example of gentleness from Jesus. And his gentleness was one of self-emptying. He emptied himself. He had such power, but he emptied himself. And we ought to learn from Jesus because he's our best example of what true gentleness is. And Jesus actually says to us in Matthew 11, verse 29, he says, he calls us to take up our yoke, his yoke, and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly hearted, so that your souls may find rest. If you all want your soul to find rest, then live a life of gentleness. Live a life where you are calm. You are like a gentle breeze. You will find rest. Paul, the church in, uh, in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, he, and he's pleading to the church. He says, I plead by the humility and the gentleness of Christ. I am pleading to you. And so we ought to follow that example of gentleness and not look for the bougiest person in church, but follow Jesus Christ and be like Paul who says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Amen. And so the model of Jesus Christ is selflessness. It is self-emptying. But here's the greatest um, example of gentleness. It is power that was never used to defend himself. Jesus Christ never welded his power to defend himself. Not once. But Clive, didn't Jesus whip people in, in the temple? The answer is yes, he whipped them. Whipped them very good. But it was never to defend himself. But didn't Jesus speak harshly and hard, use hard words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The answer is yes, he did. But it was never to defend himself. 
Not once would you find in scripture where Jesus defended himself using his power. Not once. Matter of fact, Jesus says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Jesus' defense was always towards his father, his father's reputation and the father's house, never towards himself. He never defended himself. In Isaiah 53 verse 7, he says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Even during the trial of Jesus Christ, he said to them, I can call to my father and ask my father to dispose 12 legions of angels. But did Jesus ever do that? No, he never did that. He never defended himself. Jesus took all the hostility. He took all the hatred. He took all the accusations. And he bore them on his, on, on his back. He bore them in his hands and his feet. Going to the cross. That is what gentleness will do. Let me bring it home. How many of us, when accusation, hostility, hatred, when it arises against us, are so quick to want to defend ourselves. We are so quick to want to prove our innocence. So quick to... So quick to, to want to show people that we are correct. If this group does not agree with me, I pack my bags and look for a group that will give me an empathetic ear and support me. And when I move away from that point, I am literally moving away from the point of gentleness where I can show them gentleness. And I'm moving further away to a point where I am overbearing, where I am just created a gap where I am allowing the flesh to take over. But when I stay in that position, I am allowing the fruit of the Spirit to start working in my life. How many of us, when things don't go our way, we are quick to say, don't you know who I am? Or we are so, so quick to pull out the power card. Do you know that I know your boss? Self-service is important, but at what cost? Is it at the cost of the kingdom of God that I act abrasive, I shout, I pull down a person to get what I am paying for 
I'm rightly paying for it. But that person behind the disc knows that I'm a Christian. What is the cost of getting things your way rather than getting things God's way? Gentleness, ladies and gentlemen, is evangelism in a subtle way, if you did not know. It's a evangelism in a very, very subtle way. When I turn my back and I don't receive what I truly deserve, because I have paid for that thing, and I let it go, that person may ask themselves, but what I just did was wrong. And that individual acted so nice and so kind. And they were so gentle with me. It sows a seed. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. So what is your part? When your enemy is hungry, you give them food. When they're thirsty, you give them water. Because you leave it all to God and you don't defend yourself. Paul says the following as I close. In Philippians 4 verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. When I saw the scripture, the first thing that came to my mind is, hey, let your gentleness be seen by all because Jesus is coming. Then a quiet whisper came, and, and that's, that's the right way to read it, hey? Uh, but a quiet whisper spoke the following thing. It said, let your gentleness be known by all men because... God is showing his hand through you. He is showing his hand. When your gentleness is seen, you are showing God's hand. You are being a poor poker player. You're showing the hand.